Today's reading is Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 12. It can be found on page 1114 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord. I guess I didn't expect to have coffee up here, but oh well. I'll just set that right there. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be with you guys uh, today. Last week, I think you heard from my colleague and friend, Kevin Adams. He is, uh, he and I are pastor together up in Lincoln at Granite Springs Church. And actually, Mark and I, uh, I met Mark in 1990, your pastor, Pastor Mark, uh, 97, 98, and we were in seminary together. And he and Lisa started attending the church where my wife and I were attending, and then we were in a small group together. And then Mark and I ended up with these, uh, as the graduate students in the library, we would get our own little cubicles where we could move in for the year. And so my cubicle was like right here, and Mark's was right over. So occasionally we would throw paper wads over at each other uh, while we were trying to study. Uh, But anyway, I'm glad to be a part of, uh, I I actually came to Sacramento area in uh, 2001, Mark and Lisa came at the same time. We were both doing internships. He was at a church on Florin Road, and I was actually at the church I'm at now in, uh, at Rockland, in Rockland at the time, uh, but now in Lincoln. And then he went back to seminary for one more year, and I stayed here, and then he came back out. So anyway, we've been working together in this area for about uh, eight or nine years together. So anyway, uh, here to bring a message to you, and uh, before we do that, let's uh, pray together. Father, we uh, confess with our heart and with our lips, and we use the words of the psalmist. We say, uh, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, We pray that you take your word and that uh, you use it to open our hearts and to open our minds. Uh, Make us receptive to uh, the message that you have for us today and use it to change us, uh, to become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't think I have to tell you that it's football season before uh, we began service today. I heard some folks talking about uh, games that were going on. One of you had DVR'd uh, one of the, the Raiders game. You didn't want to hear what was going on. And uh, so, yeah, so here you are. We're glad you're here. It's, uh, there's a hundred other places you could be on a Sunday afternoon like this. I happen to be more of a college football fan myself, so uh, Sunday afternoons missing a, a game or two isn't such a big deal. But if you're a college football fan like I am, then you're probably aware of a story that broke towards the end of the season last year and really took over much of the college football world during the offseason. And uh, earlier this summer, I'd say it concluded, but it came to a point when fans, supporters, and students uh, gathered outside uh, Beaver Stadium on the campus of Penn State University chanting, We are Penn State. And while they were doing this, 
There were workers behind a blue tarp with jackhammers and forklifts uh, removing the statue of their late coach, Joe Paterno. Well, if you are a fan of college football, you're no doubt aware that until this past summer, up until the week in which that statue was removed, Joe Paterno was the winningest football coach of all time in college football. For 61 years, 61 years, he worked tirelessly with that program to build it into one of the finest in the nation. Athletes were both successful on the field and in the classroom, and they graduated to become upstanding citizens in their community. But what we knew earlier this summer was that one of Paterno's assistants had been convicted on some 40 counts of child molestation, and what we had come to learn later was almost too much to stomach that top university officials, including Paterno himself, knew about Jerry Sandusky's behavior for the past 14 years, and they did nothing about it. In fact, they even made attempts to cover it up. So the university had hired an independent investigator, Louis Free. He was a former FBI director, and he uh, went, you know, did all kinds of investigations, came up with this report, in it, he said this, that uh, top officials, including the president of the university, the athletic director, and Coach Paterno himself, repeatedly concealed critical facts relating to Sandusky's child abuse from the authorities, the University Board of Trustees, the Penn State community, and the public at large. Why, he said? To avoid bad publicity for the university. The report went on to state that there were lots of lower-ranking employees that worked on campus that observed, some of the, uh, observed Sandusky assaulting boys in the showers or in the locker rooms and failed to report it for fear that they would lose their jobs. And then this, the report concluded, that Penn State officials, and this is in Freya's words, failed to stop Sandusky because there was what he called a culture of reverence for the football program that was ingrained at all levels of the campus community. Reverence. A kind of worship that made football at Penn State sacred and thought to be immune to corruption. Reverence that turned ordinary human beings into the kind of people that no one dared confront. Reverence that, as uh, Sacramento Bee columnist Marcos Breton observed, made Paterno out to be a god in the eyes of the community and the world. You know, faith is tough. It really is. It's tough no matter what you believe. It's tough because whenever you believe something by faith, you believe something that you cannot prove. It's interesting. I think sometimes we shy away from the idea of faith because we think, well, you know, those are the things that are less certain. But reality is, is that we rely on faith a whole lot more often than we might at first realize. For example, if I were to ask you, does your spouse or your significant other or your mother, for that matter, does she or he love you? And you'd say, well, of course she does. Of course he does, right? And I'd say, well, how do you know? I'd say, well, I mean, I just know. I mean, they're, they're, they're faithful to me. You say, oh, oh, they're faithful to you. I say, how do you, I mean, couldn't they be fooling you? Couldn't they be making this all up? And you kind of scratch your head and say, yeah, I mean, I suppose I could put a, a I suppose I could put a camera on them, on my spouse, my significant other. I probably don't have to put one on your mother, but 24-7 to, to watch them, right, to, to prove, if you will, that they are being faithful in their relationship. Yeah, except that's not the kind of relationship that uh, any of us want, is it? 
or that we would want from our spouse or from our significant other. I say that as a way of introduction because, well, the, today the question is not so much about faith itself, but it's about the kind of faith that you have, the kind of belief that you have. When you hear a story like you heard, at, like we hear at Penn State, what we realize is that the person that you put your faith in, what you believe in, who you believe in, where you put all that, that trust, it really matters who it is. And so that's really our question today. What kind of belief really matters? What I think often happens is that we settle for sometimes the wrong kind of belief. The movie Bull Durham, I don't know if any of you have seen that. It came out late 80s, early 90s, about that time. It was written by a man who grew up in the faith but became disillusioned by it. It opens with a voiceover of someone saying, I believe in the church of baseball. I've tried, I've tried all the major religions, even some of the minor ones, but it's the church of baseball that truly feeds the soul. Later on in the movie, the, the lead actor, Kevin Costner, uh, gives his own creed. And his, his own creed goes something like this. He says, I believe in the soul, the hanging curveball, the high fiber, good scotch, a constitutional amendment, amendment banning astroturf, and I believe in the designated hitter. You can believe in the religion of baseball. You can. And that might last you for a while. You can believe in the religion of football. There's a lot of things you can believe in. You can make up a creed for yourself. You can say, I'm just going to believe in myself. In fact, that's what a lot of good coaches or mentors will tell young people, right? Believe in yourself and you can do just about anything. Now, I would like to say, certainly, there is a lot of value in believing in yourself. We would say, as followers of Jesus, it's accepting the image of God that's been put in us, in the soul of every human being, that we are noble creatures. The psalmist says that we've been created just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. We have dignity. But is that enough? Is baseball enough? Are you enough? Treating uh, another human being with dignity is one thing. Treating them as someone or something to believe in, as something sacred. That's what happened at Penn State. Joe Paterno was not God. He was human. And that was part of the problem. So the question remains, what kind of belief really matters? You know, for thousands of years, followers of Jesus have recited religious creeds. You talk about a creed, a creed that you make about baseball, a creed you make for yourself. We've recited religious creeds. A little bit later in the service when we celebrate communion, we're going to say a creed together. Now, a creed is a way we summarize our faith. A creed is a way we take all the things that the Bible might say about what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. It puts them into something simple and something specific and something concise. It says, here's our creed. Here's what we believe. The creed that we often hear in our services is the Apostles' Creed. It says, it begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And then if you know, you can kind of finish it. We'll, we'll, you'll hear it later in the service today. That's one of the Christian creeds. It's a summary of biblical teachings that's been accepted by followers of Jesus all around the world, of all stripes, of every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, and across all time. But I suspect that most of us um, aren't so dumb when it comes to creeds, are we? Because I suspect that we all know full well that there might be two people who say the Apostles' Creed. They might even sit next to each other in the pew. They may have grown up going to the same church all their life. 
And you see those two people, they both, they both attend regularly, they both serve relentlessly, they give of themselves, they give generously uh, of their money to the work of the church. But when you look at their life and you look at the way they live, you can't help but notice that more or less, one, the first person is, as best they can, is a humble, loving, truthful, surprisingly bold person, full of life, a good-hearted person. And the other, as much as you'd like to, to like them, well, more often than not, they tend to be, well, on the arrogant side, a little bit proud, maybe a bit, little bit selfish, angry, judgmental, cold-hearted, a gossip. And the question we ought to ask is, do these people really believe the same thing? They say the same creed, but it doesn't show up in the life that they live. If they really believe the same thing, if they really follow the same Jesus, why doesn't it make a bigger difference in their life? It's not just true for this imaginary pair of people I've set up. I think it's true for most of us at some level, as much as we wouldn't like to admit it. John Ortberg takes a whole bunch of, in his book, uh, ideas or, or things that we would say uh, are from the Bible that we would all, I bet we could say with, much, with a, a lot of confidence that we all agree to. For example, if I were to say to you, judge not lest you be judged, come straight out of the Bible and I say, now, how many of you agree with that? I think it'd be hard-pressed to find someone to say, no, no, I don't think that's true, right? We'd all say, yeah, I, be- I think that's true. I believe that. I don't want to be the kind of person who judges lest I be judged myself. And yet, how often don't we find ourselves offering criticism that does so much more to tear down than it does to build up? Or take, for example, this one. It's better to give than it is to receive. Yeah, we even know that one, right? We say, ah, who believes that? You say, yeah, I, I believe that. I, I, subscribe. I think that's true. But our wallet is oftentimes a whole lot less certain, isn't it? Or this one, it says, uh, let the one who would be great among you become a servant. And if I were to take a poll and say, okay, who says that's true? Look, if you want to be great, you must become a servant. We look at and say, yeah, I think that's true. Look at someone like Mother Teresa, right? I mean, how did she become really great? It's because she gave up so much to serve others, and that's why we think she's so great. I say, yeah, I think that's true, and yet, for so many of us, our actions show something else. Or one more, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air, and they don't worry, they don't, and how much more won't your Father in heaven take care of you? Do I need to be anxious? Will God care for me? And the answer, we all say, yeah, I believe that, right? God will take care of me. I don't need to be anxious. And yet how many of our lives are filled with so much anxiety that it's crippling to us and to the life that we live? Karen read for us today this little section from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, on Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the faith. It said, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
You know, you go on a journey and it has certain built-in uncertainties, doesn't it? The Genesis version of this account that's recorded here in Hebrews, it begins this way. God comes to Abraham. He's in a land where his family are there. He knows it's the place where he grew up. He says, Abraham, take your, pick up, take your wife, take your family, take your animals and go to a place I will show you. Crazy, isn't it? The God, just follow me, Abraham. Just follow me. I'll ta- I'm taking you somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to take you, but I'm going I'm to take you there. He says, by faith, when called to go to a place, Abraham went. Crazy, huh? I don't know. If, I have a childhood um, acquaintance, a friend maybe. Talk about crazy journeys. And uh, he's hiking the Appalachian Trail this summer. He's probably got about 50 miles to go. Someone I grew up with. Now, I've often, I've not done this myself. I've often considered hiking the Appalachian Trail. It's one of those dreams you have maybe someday, right? Uh, never even came close. But anyway, you know, most people hike a portion of the Appalachian Trail. They cl- hike up for the day. They walk around, you know, go back home, sleep in their nice, warm, cozy bed. It's 2,100 miles from start to finish. Well, Mark decided to do it. Well, if you're a through hiker, Mark's my friend, right? You start down in Georgia. You head all the way up to, to Maine somewhere. But if you're, there's a certain culture that comes with being a through hiker, right? I mean, at, you go along. At a certain point, you, you get a trail name. You don't just have your railing. You have a trail name, and you... You get to know people along the way. You hike with them for a day or maybe a week, and then you part ways and you keep going. There's, a, there's jargon. There's, a, you know, there's, there's terms that are used among through hikers. I'm sure they look a little bit derisively at those who are just you know, day hikers. They're kind of wimpy, a little pansy maybe. Um, you know, you're a real, real through hiker kind of person. And then there's trail angels. This is part of the culture of being a through hiker. And Mark writes, he said, you know, we had some days where we'd go 15 miles without finding any water. But then there'd be, there would be trail angels that would leave bottles of water in strategic places along the way. So you can kind of guess what a trail angel is. They're, they're locals that, have their, that are caring for these people as they go from place, as they move along the trail. And they place things like water in strategic places. Well, he said one day, we had been hiking for a long time, no water. I actually think, no, this day had been, so you know, get the weather straight, right? It had been raining and it was cold and they were wet. Um, not like it has been here over the summer. And uh, there was a business card stuck in the tree at one of the crossings. You know, you come out of the, out of the trail and you cross a road, right? And there's a business card. Call if you want a hot shower and a warm meal. Well, yes. So, they, yeah, we're going to take them up on this. So they call. Turns out there's this couple. For 11 years, they've been doing this. They treat through hikers to a warm meal, a hot shower. You get to spend the night in their, in their warm beds, and then they do your laundry for you and send you off on your way. 11 years they've been doing this, and not once have they had a bad experience. Truly amazing people. I mean, Mark was just thrilled. I mean, you can imagine. What struck me about this story as I thought about it is I always had this assumption, you know, you dream about doing this trail. I was like, you know, if I ever hike the Appalachian Trail, I'm sure I would have to spend a lot of time planning for this, right? You know, I'm going to plan... Okay, I can go about this far in a day, and here's a place where I can go in to get more supplies. I'll have a, you know, a supply drop here. I'll have my mom mail me cookies at this you know, station here. Come pick it up. And you, know, you figure you time everything out so you can get water in just the right places. It never occurred to me that something like a trail angel might not only be helpful or beneficial, but it might even be necessary. That you'd come to depend on something, on totally unplanned, unorchestrated events as, as, as a trail angel, something you can't plan on. My hunch is that most of us feel like our lives are pretty well planned out, right? If we, if we're, if we run out of milk, we, you know, we run around the corner to the store and we grab a, a new gallon of milk and we run back home again, we, 
you know, we need gas. We know where the gas station is. We got our cell phone. It always works because there's always reception. Everything is, is, is coordinated. It's orchestrated. That you would have to come to depend on unplanned, unorchestrated encounters with total strangers. It's just not in the cards. It's not how we plan to live our life. And then we receive a diagnosis. We're forced to take an early retirement. We just graduated college. We don't know what the next six months is going to bring, let alone the next six years. A similar story, kind of like this. Some of you maybe remember Eric and Shelley Dirksen. I know they spent some time here, and then you guys sent them off to Davis, down to Davis, up to Davis, over to Davis, however that works for me, uh, to start a church there. We had someone by us up in Lincoln um, stop in in June. They were exploring, they're exploring moving out here to do a church. They'd spent some time with us, just like Eric and Shelley spent some time with you, and then we'd bless them and send them off. And as part of that, you know, they came out here to, um, well, like you do anytime you're looking to take a new job somewhere, you scope out the area, is this a good fit for us, does this work? And as part of that experience, they wrote up a little blog piece, and they posted it on the blog of our website. You can go read it if you want to know more. But the gist of it, of their story, went something like this. He said, we came out to California hoping to get a road map, what might feel like a set of GPS coordinates, you know, Here's where you're going. This is what it's going to look like. And here's how it'll feel when you get there. And as they were sitting in Muir Woods, of all places, among some of the biggest trees in the state, they had this epiphany, if you will. They had this kind of realization that God wasn't, doesn't typically give us roadmaps with GPS coordinates, with a picture of what things are going to look like at the end. What he does instead is he gives us signposts. He says, this is the next way to go. This is what's coming next. And here's the direction. Will you follow me? Will you obey? Will you go where I'm calling you to go? It's faith. That's how God works with Abraham too, doesn't he? We want maps and directions. Abraham probably wanted maps and directions. And God gives us signposts. And the question is, are you going to follow him or not? That's what God, he, God says to Abraham. He comes to him in Genesis 11, 27. He says, go, go, leave your country. Leave your father's household. Leave everything that you've ever known and go to a land that I will show you. Now, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. He makes this, Abraham doesn't even have any kids at this point. He's got, he's got nothing. and nothing to really lean onto in this promise. All we get in, in Genesis is this. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now you might think, well, yeah, that's Abraham. He's the father of the faith. He's a patriarch. Of course he went, right? Abraham was 75 years old at the time that God called him and gives him this promise. So this Abraham, this man of faith, the, guy that, the, the man that Hebrews commends for his faith, well, the story goes like this. Maybe you know a little bit about the story. Let me remind you. He follows God to the land where he's going to show him, where he's going to take him. And there's a famine in the land. And so they keep on going, and they get to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, Abraham looks at his wife, and he says, you know, you're beautiful, and I'm rich, and probably the Pharaoh is going to want to have you for his harem. Right? It's all in there. And so he says, you know, this is a problem, because in those days they probably would kill Abraham. So Abraham says, you know, to get Sarah, he says, I'll tell you what, let's pretend that you're my sister, 
Now you might say, well, I guess Abraham's just being a little shrewd, but this isn't the kind of behavior that earns you husband of the year awards either. You know, okay, honey, you know, we could trust God here or we'll just let you be my sister. Well, time marches on, right? You know, it's been, they've been in Egypt. They come back to the land that God's going to give them. There's still no son. This is a problem. And Sarah says to Abraham, here, take my servant Hagar, sleep with her, and that she may produce an offspring for us. The text simply states, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Again, this is not the kind of stuff that earns you husband of the year awards. I mean, I don't know quite what Abraham was thinking, right? But you know, here, go sleep with my, my servant. Maybe she'll produce an offspring. You, know, you can make a little bigger deal of this and say, uh, well, you know, God made a promise. We trust God's going to provide for us. We know that God's going to come through on his promise because he's the kind of God that keeps his promises. That's not what they do. Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hand. And you can see even today the mess that that's created. I mean, the story is that Ishmael, the son that was born of this relationship, is, is the father of all the Arab and, and, and Muslim nations. Now you can say maybe that's a little bit too far to take it, but if you think about the conflict between those two peoples, you can just see what kind of chaos that's become of this event. And then it, go, it continues... Three visitors arrive some 25 years after God first made his promise to Abraham. And they tell them that in, at the, this time next year, Sarah will be, Abraham and Sarah will have a son. And Abraham and Sarah, their reaction to this news, they just laughed. They laughed at this promise that God had made to them. The point is this, Abraham this hero of the faith, this patriarch, this great father of belief, the one Hebrews commends, who supposedly hears a word from the Lord himself, finds all kinds of reasons to doubt God's promises and to doubt his goodness. I think what Abraham's story, along with so many others, probably your story and my story, shows us is that really what's true is that faith and doubt go together. That the right kind of belief, remember, because the question is, what's the right kind of belief comes not in a set of rituals or in a set of practices or in a set of behaviors. They may be part of it, but they ultimately come from obedience to the call of God to go. God says, follow me. Let me take you to the place where I am going. God says, let me take you to a land that I will show you. Follow me with your whole life. Obey my decrees and my commands because they're right and because they're just and because they're true. And because as Abraham understood, God was taking him to a city whose foundations and whose builder and architect was God. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, it starts at verse 16. It, says, it begins this way. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Can you imagine? I'm just so glad that Matthew put those three little words in there, but some doubted. If you can imagine these, these disciples have been following Jesus for three years. Wherever he went, they went. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him be rejected by the religious leaders and by the crowds. They saw him hang on a cross and die. And then they see him raise, rise from the dead. 
And then the women come and say, he's alive, he's alive again. They say, go meet me up at this place on a hill in Galilee, and there I'll be with you. And you kind of, you see all this, and it's, it's almost too much to believe, isn't it? I mean, it's not surprising when you hear this, but some doubt and you think, yeah, that's real. That makes sense to me. That Matthew put those words in there, suddenly the whole story makes sense that these disciples who've been with God, who'd, out, who'd watched all these amazing things, you could say, well, of course they, were, they believed because they were with them. Or on the other hand, you scratch your head and you say, how could anybody believe that? In Matthew's words, they're perfectly honest and perfectly, they're so simple, those three little words, and some doubted. Frederick Drell Bruner says it like this, our lives go, they go between worship and doubt. So often, between trusting and questioning, hoping and worrying. And Matthew follows up these words um, in, the, in, the, in this text with what's been called the Great Commission. Jesus says, now some doubted, therefore go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Sounds a lot like Abraham, doesn't it? Go. Go to a place I will show you. Go and serve. Go and obey. Go and help. Go and risk your life. Go and change your world. Matthew then ends this great commission, ends his whole gospel with one more little sentence. And it's probably the only thing that's certain in all of Scripture. It's Jesus' words. He says, surely, 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 I will be with you to the very end of the age. His friends, disciples, followers of Jesus are not people who don't doubt. They're people who doubt and worship. They're people who doubt and serve. They're people who doubt and people who obey. They're people who doubt and practice faithfulness all at the same time because we believe that it is as you go that all your doubts are healed. Let's pray together. Father, this afternoon we offer to you all the questions and all the doubts, all the things that make us either scratch our head or sometimes more than that we just say it doesn't make sense. It's almost too much to believe. We pray that you will put into our hearts this, this calling and this desire to follow you, uh, to say here's a signpost. I see follow you even when it doesn't always make sense to say, but I know you're taking me to the place that you will show me. And as we go, as we serve, as we trust, as we obey, uh, we lean into the promise that you are with us to the very end of the age. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.